Further, because the preacher was wise, he still taught the people knowledge. Yes, he pondered, sought out, and set in order many proverbs. The preacher sought to find out acceptable words, and that which was written blamelessly, words of truth. The words of the wise are like goads, and like nails well fastened are words from the master of assemblies, which are given from one shepherd. Furthermore, my son, be admonished. Of making many books there is no end, and much study is a weariness of the flesh. This is the end of the matter. All has been heard. Fear God and keep his commandments, for this is the whole duty of man. For God will bring every work into judgment with every hidden thing, whether it is good or whether it is evil. Ecclesiastes chapter 12, verses 9 through 14. Welcome back, I'm Brian, and today is the last episode on the book of Ecclesiastes. So our Bible study journey has spent the last couple months jumping back and forth between Ecclesiastes in the Old Testament and Philippians in the New Testament. I've titled the study, Worldly Hevel Joy in Christ, and it's about where we place our identity, what the meaning of life is, and who is the singular person that can provide us with lasting joy. So we started off the series talking about the Hebrew word hevel with Ecclesiastes pointing out the absolute hevel of trying to find our identity in things of the world. Things that could never provide lasting fulfillment, like chasing after the wind. Throughout the study, we've seen two stark contrasts. The hevel, or vanity or meaninglessness, of living a life focused only on worldly gains. This is contrasted against the true joy and contentment that placing your identity in our sovereign God can bring. They're divergent paths, and the book of Ecclesiastes has been trying to lead us up the path that gets summarized today in the conclusion of the book. We'll highlight all the verses in the passage, but we're really going to plant the last section of the episode in verse 13. This is the end of the matter. All has been heard. Fear God and keep his commandments, for this is the whole duty of man. So I pray that as we work through this passage, we can heed those words that all of us could be equipped to walk a path of reverential fear for our Creator, that all of us could live more obediently to His Word, and that we could either come to faith or become more secure in our faith that Jesus Christ is fully God and fully man, that He is the one and only Son of God, that He lived a life that perfectly feared and perfectly honored God the Father, that He died on the cross for us, was resurrected, and that He will return again in glory. Let's dive in. Further, because the preacher was wise, he still taught the people knowledge. Yes, he pondered, sought out, and set in order many proverbs. The preacher sought to find out acceptable words, and that which was written blamelessly, words of truth. Ecclesiastes 12, verses 9 and 10. So these few verses give us some more clues as to who the author of the book is. So I've mentioned that it's widely regarded to be King Solomon, David's son but we haven't really given much context to it. So in the book, the author is mentioned as the preacher or the teacher, the Hebrew word here being koalit, but the author is also labeled the king in Jerusalem, the son of David, someone who is endowed with great wisdom, all of which points to Solomon. 
Now, here in verse 9, someone who pondered, discovered, collected, and wrote many proverbs is also described as being the same teacher. Solomon also is considered to be the author of the book of Proverbs. So all of these context clues, they keep pointing toward King Solomon as the teacher. But it's less about who God used to write the book, because in the next section we'll read that these words did in fact originate from the one true shepherd. Instead, it's about why these words were written, which we're going to get to in verse 10. The preacher's goal was to deliver words of truth. So wisdom, the application of wisdom, and the ultimate truth about life, that's what this is all about. He's not looking to answer some of the lower level questions. He's going all in to the highest level question. What is the ultimate truth of life? And so who we are and what we've been created for is covered. Or put in our, the words that we're using currently in this study, who, what is our identity in? It is still 100% reliant on the rest of the passage, though. Wisdom cannot exist apart from God and God's word, and that's where the words delivered by the preacher come from. They come from God. Zach Eswine states that the aim of this preacher's message is that we who listen will come to believe in God and to recover our purpose with his gift and to see that our whole purpose as human beings is a God-centered relationship toward all things. So in the end, these verses, they're trying to get us to focus not on who the preacher is, but on what the preacher is saying and on how he is saying it. The words of the wise are like goads, and like nails well fastened are words from the masters of assemblies, which are given from one shepherd. Furthermore, my son, be admonished. Of making many books there is no end, and much study is a weariness of the flesh. Ecclesiastes 12, verses 11 and 12. So verse 11 starts with two kind of weird comparisons. The words of the wise being like goads, and the words of the wise being like nails. So let's do goad first. And I'll start by saying that the word gets translated as goad here and has a little bit of an uncertainty behind it in its derivation. It's only used one other place in the Old Testament, 1 Samuel 13, verse 21. So the translators had to really do their homework on this one and also take contextuality as a factor. That being said, all the major translations agree, and they either translate the word as goad or cattle prod. So biblical wisdom is meant to keep us pointed along the correct path. It would act similar to the shepherd's staff that we've talked about in Psalm 23 and some New Testament passages. The NLT actually describes the cattle prods as painful but helpful. So the wisdom might not always be what we want to hear, but it is what we need to hear. The second word is nails, and every translation has nails. What do nails serve to do, though? Well, nails serve to affix something or to anchor something where it needs to be. And here in verse 11, we get an adjective to describe the state of the nail. It might vary by translation, but you're going to see words like well-fastened, firmly fixed, well-studded, or firmly embedded. Like the words of the wise, they are in their good. This is an anchor that ain't moving, and it's not falling down. So this is about actively listening to true wisdom that is meant to correct to guide, to firmly anchor us where we need to be as believers. But it's not wisdom from men. The passage makes clear that it is wisdom from the true shepherd and wisdom from him alone. So we're talking about wisdom from God, 
Solomon is affirming that his words are actually God's words, that the wisdom he was granted is actually wisdom from God, and that as such it should carry a heavier weight than other words. There are a billion books out there that claim to know the secrets to something. And books can be great. Just be aware that there's no end to the number of books people will write and try to sell to you. But if a book deviates from the wisdom of God, if a book is contrary to biblical wisdom, that book's actually not providing any wisdom at all. It's potentially leading us down a path of folly. People can write wonderfully helpful books. I have plenty of books that offer guidance and wisdom in certain areas. But good wisdom, sound wisdom, wisdom worth listening to, it's guided by the wisdom of God first, not by other worldly pursuits or goals. We should not rely on the wisdom and the literature of the world for our guiding purposes. We should build our identity around God, not the words of the world. Thomas Schreiner writes, The preacher emphasizes that there is no pleasure under the sun that fully and finally satisfies. And there's no wisdom available that will unlock all of life's secrets. God rules over all, but much is hidden from the gaze of human beings. Then he goes on later to say that instead of attempting to unravel the puzzles of human existence by trying to discern why one thing happens rather than another, human beings must give themselves entirely to God. It's a hard thing to hear, something that we struggle with doing. And look, Ecclesiastes is about the struggles we face. The reality of living in a fallen world, the pull that we feel to try to find answers to puzzling logic or tragic realities. And Ecclesiastes says trying to tackle all of them apart from God, that's just hevel. Trying to reach the pinnacle of human wisdom just for wisdom's sake, it's meaningless. Trying to stockpile worldly possessions, it's just vanity. Trying to unlock the secrets of the universe just so you can know it, that's futility. It's all going to feel like you're just chasing after the wind. It's going to exhaust us. It's a wearisome task to have your identity wrapped up around worldly pursuits, and then to try to use worldly wisdom to attain those pursuits. So instead, seek after God first. Then allow the wisdom of God to affect how you live. By all means, pursue wisdom. Work hard, love others, give generously, celebrate your blessings, and find joy in the life that God's given you. Just remember that wisdom and work and love and generosity and celebrations and pleasures, those aren't the end game. That's not why we've been created. Fearing God, loving Jesus, pursuing godly wisdom, glorifying God with our lives, that is what we've been created for. That task has eternal value. So our life is not meaningless. It turns out what we do with our life and how we seek to honor God, it actually has ultimate meaning. It has a significance that we struggle to grasp sometimes. It's this meaning and significance that the book of Ecclesiastes wants us to see and be reminded of. This is the end of the matter. All has been heard. Fear God and keep his commandments, for this is the whole duty of man. For God will bring every work into judgment, with every hidden thing, whether it is good or whether it is evil. Ecclesiastes chapter 12, verses 13 to 14. So in light of everything in this book, what is the conclusion? What is the end of the matter? What is our purpose and our identity to be anchored in? 
It's meant to be anchored in fearing God and keeping his commandments. This, the Bible says, is the whole duty of man. Charles Ryrie states that Solomon learned to live with life's paradoxes by maintaining a proper attitude toward life and God. Fee and Stewart conclude that the book of Ecclesiastes fits into the biblical story as a constant reminder of the brevity of human life in light of eternity. It emphasizes our need to fear God while also paving the way for the greater revelation of our certain resurrection through Jesus Christ. Then in the final verse, verse 14, it's clear that judgment is coming. One of the things that this book underlines is that there are really only two certainties in this world, death and judgment. Those two certainties are one of the reasons why living wisely for God is such a logical conclusion in the book. Making worldly pursuits your number one seed, your top priority, is meaningless when death is certain and you can't take your stuff or your popularity with you. Living with a reverential fear of God, however, that makes all the sense in the world. We will one day be judged for how we lived. None of us are going to do it perfectly. And if we were judged on our works, then we would be in trouble. But if you are a follower of Jesus, if you're a Christian, then when you are judged, all that is seen by God the Father is washed clean by the spotless blood of Jesus Christ our Savior, the Lamb who is slain for the forgiveness of our sins. So that's a promise and a truth for all who have faith genuine faith in the life and works of Jesus. That doesn't mean that we live life with a reckless abandon toward sin and foolish worldliness. No, true faith means that we desire to genuinely strive for God-fearing obedience. Not because we can be perfect, but because we love our God enough to press forward and to allow ourselves to be transformed by His amazing grace. The idea of judgment can be scary, but judgment can also be a blessing. The God of our salvation redeeming us to eternal life with our Savior, that's a beautiful thing. We just must live a life of faith to receive it. So one of the concluding questions becomes, do you live life like judgment is real? The book ends with a verse about judgment, and we've already determined that this book isn't randomly compiled without purpose. I actually think that the final word being on judgment's inevitability, it's a good final word for the book. Because if we live life like judgment's not real, or like it's only ever going to be this warm and fuzzy, lighthearted thing, then we're never fully going to open ourselves up to God. We can't live with a reverential fear of God if we don't actually believe in God as our creator, God as our redeemer, and God as our judge. Thanks for listening. Unless otherwise noted, all Bible verses were from the World English Bible Translation, which is in the public domain. So I've posted a couple pictures of some of the resources that were used in the Ecclesiastes study of this page on the From Hevel to Eternity Instagram page. Next episode, I'm hoping to cover Philippians chapter 4 and to finish off the study. Until then, though, I love y'all.